I'm Scott Michael Shotgun with McLeod Bethel Thompson, and this is the Athlete Purpose Beyond Sport Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Athlete Podcast. We are back again this week, and we got a special one for you. So uh, as we start every week, we want to invite one of our ancestors into this space to bless us with wisdom and guidance as we go through this conversation about sports. And this week, we have Pop Warner. And I think this is going to tie in nicely, so you guys got to stick with me a little bit on this. While Pop Warner is obviously one of the founding fathers of football, innovative in the early, late 19th, late 19th century, early 20th century, coached multiple teams, famous coach, um, huge in, in, in building the American football game that we see today. Uh, he was born in 1871 in New York. He went to Cornell um, as a guard. And actually, he took some time off and went to Texas and came back. And so he was older when he, came, when he first enrolled in college. So that's where the name Pop came from. He was an older gentleman, and so they referred to him as Pop Warner. Um, interesting note here, and I think this is where we're going to start tying this in. In 1902, he played in the first ever indoor football game at Madison Square Garden. Now, I don't know. I couldn't get enough research about this game. But this game was – he played for the Syracuse Athletic Club, and this, the, the tournament was called the World Series of Football at Madison, Madison Square Garden between a series of teams. Now, what game were they playing indoors at Madison Square Garden? I'm curious as to what it looked like. Is this arena football? I don't know. I had more research to be done, but I think that's one of the gems that'll tie in as you see later with our guest. Um, one of the most fascinating facets of his uh, kind of career was his time at the Carlisle Indian School, where he taught as a coach and he basically proliferated, hugely expanded the game with with the single wing, the double wing formation. Um, instead a lot of like a pitches and sweeps that they didn't usually before that it was really pound by kind of straight ahead kind of game um, and then obviously the forward pass which he basically revolutionized uh, the Carlisle Indians team was a lot smaller than the Pens and the Harvards and the dominant teams of the era but he implemented the, the forward pass and, and did some really amazing things and actually beat some of the powerhouses during his journey um, he has an amazing record I believe he's uh, 309 wins, I think a hundred and some losses in his, in his coaching career, like huge, amazing career, uh, coached at, uh, Pitt, Stanford, Temple, and ended up, here's a, another tie into it at San Jose state. And then did his coaching career at San Jose state in 1940 and passed away in Palo Alto, California. So we come full circle and we come all the way back to the West coast and I want to hand it off. So I want to, Welcome, Pop Warner, to the space. Guide us with wisdom and hand it off to Scott to introduce our guest today. Your ability to find find relevant history for this thing is just, it's unmatched. That's you know, a, that's a great I, little historian in me, creeping out. I love it. Well, our guest today is the one and only Mark Grieb. Uh, Grieb played his college ball at the University of California, Davis, um, before he spent 13 years playing quarterback in the Arena Football League. He also had short stints in the NFL Europe back when it was going on and uh, played in the first round of the XFL back in 2001. Uh, Grieve now coaches high school football at Sacred Heart Prep in Atherton, California. But he's also an educator in the classroom. He's a husband and a father. Mark Grieve, it is damn good to see you. Welcome. Man, thanks for having me on. This is great. I love that Pop Warner reference. I, uh, I just read a book called The Real All-Americans ah. about the Carlisle Indians. Did you? One of the best books I've ever read. Uh, just talked about the, the beginnings of football and how brutal the game was and how Teddy Roosevelt got involved. And he had to 
had to crack down on them because it was too violent. Like people were dying and eighteen <laughs> so, deaths in nineteen oh five. That's yeah, yeah, it was crazy. I'm 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 glad I didn't play back then. <laughs> Are, arena football or outside football? <laughs> let's let's start right there. Let's go a little bit off script. What what are the sort of, sort of things did you get out of that book? Uh, well, I think a lot of the things that Mac talked about, um, just about how they were so innovative with the game and they really put, they really made deception a, a huge part of the game and that it was, um, it, their success was so dependent on not just their size and brawn because they were sort of outmatched physically by a lot of teams. It was really based on their skill and their willingness to work together and their speed and their quickness. Um, you know, that, that to me is what, like, it, some of the best games that I've ever been a part of or ever, ever watched. It's like when those things come together, when you're a part of a group of men who, like, work so hard and, um, and lay it all out there against all odds, um, there, there's no feeling like that when you go out and beat a team that's, you know, you know is physically better than you. It, so you obviously had you had a long, really successful, kind of non-traditional in a lot of ways professional playing career, but a very successful career. I, and when I talk to friends and and you know tell people about the quarterback that I got to play with, you know, besides obviously Mac, who a lot of my friends have met, but you know I refer to you as being like the Peyton Manning of the arena of the arena league. And uh, you know when we were playing, you were coach on the field. I mean, you're calling plays, you're, you're reading defenses, you're really being an offensive coordinator on the field. And I was blown away by your, your understanding and mastery of, of the game in that level. W moving on from just briefly from, uh, from talking about playing the game, but what's the transition been like for you from playing into your role now as a coach? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, the first thing it's funny you say that um, because you guys saw the me in the the later years, right? Um, when I when I first came to SaberCats, um, people were saying, "Wow, this guy can't he can't be a starter. He's so quiet. He doesn't say anything." And uh, and and Mally kind of stuck up for me and said, "You know, let's just see how he does and see if his play talks for you know talks for himself." But then by the time by the time you know uh, I came back for that you know in uh, 2011 2012. You know, I've been playing for 10 years. I just knew the game so well. I felt like I had so much to share with you guys. And, uh, and honestly, it was just a blast. I mean, I had so much fun. You know, I loved playing the game. I loved, you know, teaching the game. Um, I mean, like, like what, what the, the quarterbacks used to do in the old days, call your own plays. I mean, it was, it was so fun. Like, I didn't have to look over. I mean, maybe they wanted me to, but. I didn't. I just called what I wanted to call. You know, I mean, uh, Mac, you probably that, that year you were there. It was like a, at first I wasn't, and then I was, and uh, you know, the last year it was just all me, and you know, it was it was a lot of fun. Kind of like going out and playing in the playground. I mean, honestly, I I love playing the game so much. Like I I miss it a lot, even though physically I, I walked away at the right time. I knew I was done. Um, but uh, but I could have never played as long as I did if I didn't didn't love it the way I did. You know, I was coming out of college. Um, I remember I was actually I did my workouts at Sac State, and um, because nobody wanted to come see me, so I went over to Sac State where they were working out this this fullback, and uh, 
I remember thinking to myself after one of the workouts, I go, man, there was just a place for me to play. Like, I don't even care what it is. And then it was just crazy how it worked out, how I got the opportunity to play. Um, and I just, you know, was so fortunate to be, to be able to have done that. So uh, it was it, it was an amazing, amazing time. And to do something that you love for that long, I mean, you know, it, it's that's a, I, I realize now what a special thing that is. Um, and, and, you know, as far as making the transition um, in the coaching, I'll just first to say, start by saying um, I think anybody who transitions out of playing, and Scott, you know this, and McLeod, someday you'll know this, that there's some level of, like, just letdown and depression and, uh, uh, you know, just sadness of moving on from it. I think in addition for me, there was this, like, almost like a drug you know, you get this adrenaline rush, you have this, the highs and lows of a, of a football week, you know, the brotherhood and the camaraderie that you get in the locker room. And like to say goodbye to all that is like, so like sad, you know? Um, so it was initially really tough. Um, but, uh, but, you know, then you kind of move on and you look for other things and you look for other ways to, you know, help and, uh, and, and finding, you know, Sacred Heart was, was really a blessing for me because, you know, uh, kind of like what you guys were talking about before, um, that I, I think it is a little bit more about just the sport of football in high school um, because so many of the guys, they're not going to go on to play in college or professional. Um, they're just playing because they love the game and, you know, and that there's, there's so much for them to learn. Um, so I've really found a, a great place where I, I really love coaching and, um, and I'm still involved in the game and I still get to fire up those competitive, you know, fires every once in a while. I love it. I want to dive back into, cause you got, we, there's a lot of gems I want to hit on <laughs> in that conversation right there, but I want to go back to the playing days for a, a second and just kind of to, to frame who we're talking with and with the level of expertise. We're talking about 47,000 yards in passing. We're talking about over 900 touchdowns. We're talking about 3,800 completions. We're talking about a three-time champion. We're talking about a 73% completion percentage. 73% times you th 73% of the time you throw the ball, it goes to the right place. We're talking about the single-season passing rating of 103.5 for a season, a career passer rating of 121.5. Nine three, um, I mean the 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 proficiency and the level that you were able to do it with is just immaculate. And I just want to give our listeners like the level of of competency that we're talking with. And so what I want to do is kind of with that conversation ask two questions. One question is like, what was your phys your your best physical skill, and how was a way that you kind of developed that skill? And then what was your best intangible skill? And how did you develop that on the field as you played? Um, I know we always kind of have like one thing we put in our back pocket that we take pride in um, as football players or like your go-to when in, when in doubt. And if you could hit kind of or think about the tangibles and the, the intangibles and, and what was your go-to in those areas and how did you develop? Them? Um, well, I, you know, I was fortunate to uh, play at Davis for a coach who – was is probably in my opinion the best quarterback coach I've ever been around um uh, Bob Biggs and um but and he was amazing I learned so much from him 
but I also was very much humbled because uh, he uh -huh. was very good at analyzing people and knowing you know exactly what you were good at and what you weren't good at and you know i was also being compared to kevin daft and kari jones both guys who were super athletes that could run and had really strong arms and so i knew i knew that the arm strength and the speed was not my that was not my thing right I and mean, that's okay i could hold it down but that wasn't my strength my strength was really the ability to you know throw an accurate ball and and make a good decision i mean and see see the field and go from receiver to receiver and and know what was going on um and kind of piece through the you know the coaching that i got to to figure out what worked for me because every quarterback um every player for that matter has to figure out you know with within the structure the format of the the offense that they're in, what worked best for them. And so for me, it was all about accuracy and decision-making and, and trying to do the best I could with the footwork. I mean, I worked on footwork every single day, like ladder drill and, um, you know, and, and wave drill and all these different things, things that, um, uh, you know, drills that Joe Montana used to do, um, my coach, uh, uh, worked with Bill Walsh, so he knew all those drills. Freddie Stevens, the great one, um, and so he 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 drilled me every day in my footwork, and so that the footwork was automatic, right? My balance, all those things were automatic because it all kind of goes together. Your footwork, your accuracy, you know, the timing, all those things go together, and so I knew that was my strength, and I was going to play on it. Unfortunately, I found a place in the Arena League where I was surrounded by some great people and a great system. You know, I mean, I, I think every player is a product of the guys around them and the system that they're in. You know, like everyone said, oh, was it Walsh or was it Montana? It was both. You know, you found the right guy for the right system. He was a perfect fit. And then he brought his, you know, greatness to that situation. And so I'm not comparing myself to Montana, but I, I'm saying I, I brought my strength as a, you know, accurate thrower and decision maker for sure. I love that. And I knew I, I had a, a sneaking feeling that you were going to answer that in the most humble way possible. So I'm going to flip the script now and come around to now that you as a coach, now that you understand that facility, how do you facilitate that space for your student athletes, for your players? Like, how do you, is it a process of getting to know them as a person, as well as an athlete? And how do you analyze that? Do you put them through drills? Do you put them through emotional situations and see how they respond? And that informs how you coach them. Um, and what kind of maybe just give a little insight into what that process looks like and some keys that, that would be interesting to the listener. I was going to start with a joke, but I'm not, I'm, that's not one of my strengths, so I won't do that. Um, Jokes are highly encouraged. I, I've, I've learned a lot um, in, in the last couple of years. At, uh, uh, sorry, I was watching Top Gun and it just came back on. Um, I, um, I learned a lot the last couple of years. So uh, two years ago, I had a quarterback who so gifted athletically and as a coach, I'm like, oh, man, I can get this guy to, you know, tune his footwork and I can teach him how to do it. Um, but he didn't want to. Mm. And so that was a great lesson for me that, you know, it's really about what the player wants to do. If they want to do it, then you can help them get there. But if they don't want to do it, then there's nothing you can do. And so um, – 
you know, I, th I think that's the first part of, of the coaching is recognizing that you're in control of helping them, but it's really them who, you know, who chooses to do it. And I've been so blessed. I have this, this kid now, he's just like, he loves it. He can't get enough football. I mean, it's just like, and it, may, and it's, it makes it so much fun for everybody around him. And then every, all the players, the coaches, everybody gets excited about it because of his enthusiasm and love for the sport and his willingness to work hard in the off season. So, I mean, I think it starts with that, but I always tell my quarterback just three things. And I kind of mentioned them um, when I was talking about myself, accuracy, decision-making footwork. Those are the things that you can work on. Um, there's probably a couple others in there, but, but that's where I spend all my time. Every single day I touch on, at, on all three of those um, in my drills. And so, you know, you got to do something where they've got to make a decision. If you go and all you do is footwork drills and then you get into a game and go, okay, throw it to the right guy, but I never practiced it, coach. You know, you, you got to drill those things. You've got to, you've got to teach them so that, you know, they've done over and over again and that it's just second nature. And, uh, you know, and then obviously the foundation is just their feet. If a guy, if a quarterback doesn't have good feet, um, you know, nothing else is going to work because, you know, they're going to be so caught up on, you know, where to put their feet or looking at the linemen you know, that they're not going to have their mind downfield really paying attention to the things they need to be paying attention to. So, Mark, you always impressed me with like your attention to detail and just the craft and understanding the, the game. But one of the stories that sticks out in my head in, in the years of knowing you was after a game, I don't remember where we were, we were on the road somewhere, but I think I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and, throw your age out here but you were you were in your late 30s at the time I think you were like 38 39 and you and James Rowe another guy about your same age had gotten back to the hotel room and you guys were just wrestling on the floor of the hotel room <laughs> like a couple little kids and like to me in my head like that's Mark Green like it, 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 all the things we did on the field in the off-season training in my head Mark Green was the dude who was wrestling with the other grown man in his hotel room and it was just like there was something about that though, that bond between two guys. You and you and James, how many years did you guys play together? Um, you know, it's funny because uh when I started looking back, uh we played together uh all but one, I think. So like twelve eleven or twelve years we played together. Um and I I you know, I still talk to James, you know, every month or so. Uh I still stay in touch with him. Uh we have I have so much respect for him as a person. Um, at, like a father, um, you know, as a, as just how he relates to people. Um, and, and he had this sense of like fun and joy and, um, but we had this chemistry on the field that was like, you can't even, there's no words to describe it. Like, I remember when he came back to, uh, to play in the year you were there, Mac, we had a game in Pittsburgh and my shoulder was messed up and Rose hamstring was, you know, hanging by a thread. And uh, I remember he, he ran this route and it was like, I knew it. I knew when he was going to break. I knew the, the second he was going to cut. And it was just, we'd done it so many times. Like, I mean, I just, I, I knew him so well. I knew him better than I knew myself. And uh, so I just trusted him so much. And, you know, just honestly, just, love the love him as a person he's such a such a great person like he's 
and, and I'm not the only one to feel that way. I mean, I think anybody who's around him has this appreciation for him. Guys just, you know, guys just, just liked him just because of who he, who he is and was and, you know, and how he treated them and made them feel about themselves, you know. I don't even honestly remember wrestling. I'm sure I, I, I'm sure I won, but. <laughs> I want to add that because I've, I've never, my, the Sabercats, when I that was my first ex- professional experience and I came off a relatively tumultuous college career. And I just want to thank you and Roe because you guys were an example that was the, the best example I could have ever possibly imagined. I don't think there's a better example out there, period, no matter what the sport, no matter what the league, no matter what the game is, as to how to be a professional, how to be an expert in your craft, how to be a good person, how to be a good teammate, how to be a good family man. And like, I have to throw, I know you're very you're humble in that way and you and you deflected at Roe, but you and Roe were shining examples as to how to behave yourself on and off a football field. And I've seen it done very poorly and I've been done well in my career, but <laughs> your, <laughs> your example, your example has really stuck with me. And it's what it's something I try to emulate. And it's something I've always wanted to cultivate, to show that level of love. And I just want to thank you for, for existing in this world and to showing me that example as to how to be a professional, how to be an expert and how to be awesome at your craft. Um, talking about that's that cool. chemistry. That's so cool to hear that because you know, when I came into the league, the first team I played for was the Anaheim Piranhas. And it was it was the opposite of that. Guys running around, you know, going to clubs and I mean it was it was just bad. Like, you know, just no no respect for the game, uh, no respect for their wives, you know, no respect for their children. I mean it was I remember my roommate, my first road trip, it was like he was screaming at his, you know, baby mama. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, this is just awful, you know. But I'm, 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 that's cool to hear that because, um, you know, it's nice, to, it's nice to see that, like, in other people, you know, and know that you're know, – know that those things are still they're, – they're still out there and there's, there, there are some good people out there, you know. Because you do get into situations where you go, I don't, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I mean, in fact, the first day I walked in the Sabercats, I, I honestly, I thought it was going to be the same thing. And I walked out. I walked out of camp. Like, I'm done. Mally called me back. And he's like, hey, you know, give it a chance. And I did. And, and really, to be honest, things changed a lot over those few years that we got more and more guys like James Rowe, Cleveland Thomas, Omar Smith um you know even all even throw sam hernandez and some of these guys that are just they were just great people like i just loved coming in and seeing these guys it was like you know it was like just you're just hanging out with your buddies and having fun and they're out there and they and they win and i i truly believe that i don't know if it was that standard that said it but that those people win the people that that do do it right and do do it out of love they, they do win the championships and it, and it takes, you know, it takes a village and it takes a whole team and you can't do it unless you're a collective, but and you can um, trust them and they'll put the work in. Exactly. You know? exactly. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm totally with you. I think that's one of the most, one of the most interesting things. One of the most powerful things about sport is like that relationship 
that it, it can help facilitate. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's a single person in my life who I spent 11 years with the same way like you and, and James did, like doing <laughs> the same things, like having fun in that sort of way. Like it, it does, it, it builds such a bond between people. And, and the way you talked about like your transition, you know, from playing into not playing anymore and not being in the same locker room on the same field with those guys, like without a doubt, it's going to be, that's going to be filled with a, an amount of depression and an amount of sadness and an amount of like just missing and longing for those relationships and those friends that you have. And that's a, that's a really natural experience to feel with that. Um, you've, you've spent, you have obviously several decades of knowledge and experience in football from, you know, youth football, high school, college, professionally, and now coaching. Uh, what's different about the lives and the cultures around sports with kids now uh, versus when you grew up and is there poignant differences or, or or how do you how do you see those two things yeah i think the expectations are a little different um in terms of like how you relate to your players and what the you know i think what the players expect from you and um and what the parents expect from you to be honest because um, the parents are a big part of it. Uh, I hear a lot of coaches talk, oh, you know, I don't want to deal with the parents. and But I think that's that doesn't make any sense to me. The parents are an integral part of the thing. They play a huge role in the people that come to play football, right? The young men that come in decide, I want to do this. They're a product of their parents and, and of, you know, they're, they're, they're individuals, obviously. But their their behaviors and their you know attitudes and how they treat people, all those things that Mac, you were saying, like you got to have guys that you know you can trust and that work hard. All, all those things are built in the home, and you know. So I I I think some things change and some things don't. I mean, having you know good people that you can trust that can work hard, um, those things are you know just as important now as they were you know a hundred years ago. So it's no different in that regard. I mean, I think what's maybe different now is, um, you know, just like people's time that they, the way they spend their time. Um, I think people spend their time more, you know, connected digitally. And so I think when they start to experience the closeness and brotherhood and camaraderie that exists in a locker room, it's like, it's so new to them, you know, like I just see our players come in and we have, you know, probably 90% of our players have never played, but never, never played tackle football. I mean, they've been on a team, um, but the, you know, I, I, and I don't want to, I don't want to knock any other sports because sports is a great way to bring people together, but there's this like sense of a group that you get from football and the closeness and a, you know, maybe a fear that goes along with it that that bonds kids together in a special way. Um, and, you know, the place I'm at now, I think, and I, and I inherited this, the culture. Um, so I wasn't, you know, the, the, you know, I didn't, I wasn't the one who originated this culture. Um, but, um, but it's amazing how, you know, disciplined and, um, determined these kids are and how much they'll give you know they may not 
you know, be able to squat 500 pounds. Uh, but in terms of showing up every day on time and giving their best effort, um, it's, it's pretty amazing. So. When you mentioned that for a lot of kids, when they walk into a locker room, it's like their first time having that really close social interaction that's very different from our very digitalized social lives that, that kids grow up in now. What do you witness out of, a lot of, out of a lot of those kids when they step into that environment for the first time? How do they act? Um, well, <laughs> loaded question. Um, uh, you know, sometimes they act like kids. Sometimes they act exactly like you'd expect them to act. And then sometimes they act really weird and do random stuff. Um, and so there's, there's a level of, you know, supervision in that. But um, I think you're getting at where, you know, what about that camaraderie? You know, it, it's weird for the freshmen who come in because they don't know, they have no idea. And so they're, you know, they're kind of squirrely, you know, just like you'd expect a freshman to be who they just came out of middle school. You know, you're just like, you know, hey, here you go. Let's see. And they're starting to get the idea of what this commitment is and, you know, and this and and being around a group that big and really the social pressures involved in that. Because it can be, a, that can be scary, right? You're in a group of 40 guys and you don't want to let them down. But then what if, what if one of them is putting pressure on you? Um, so it can be really good. Uh, it can also be really bad. And so, um we have to be vigilant as coaches and with the leaders of the team to make sure that the culture is right, that the guys are treating each other the right way. Um, you know, but I find that, you know, as, um, as they grow and mature, there's this amazing chemistry that happens and how they come together. And, you know, there's that joy that comes from, you know, just seeing each other every day and you don't even have to say anything. You know, there's a, playfulness you know it's that it's their it's their space you know I just I've always felt like the locker room was sacred you know it's like this sacred place where you know you you bond and you know you share these good times and bad with one another and uh, and I think it's that way you know it's sacred heart and I think it's that way a lot of places it's it's interesting you bring up like the the culture of a locker room being a really sacred place and I think in the last if you pay attention to media in the last five, 10 years or so, I, I think in, in some circles, the locker room has become sort of this demonized place. And I think there's certain uh, political people that have sort of referenced like locker room culture or, or that sort of thing in a very, in a very negative way. And it's been very much associated with, uh, with sexual misconducts and, and things like that. And, and unfortunately that gets misbranded, I think, with, with what a locker room experience like really is at its core. And it is just this, it is a sacred place in that it's just really strong connections and relationships among people. And it, those relationships are best when you have really good people in the locker room, right? The guys that you were talking about from, from the heydays of, of the San Jose Sabercats, when you have those bonds with really good people, people who you can really trust, people that you want your family to be around, um, that, that's really what a locker room is about, right? It's not about all the, all the other stuff that unfortunately has gotten like misbranded and wrapped into that. Um, you mentioned 
going back into this, you know, digitalized social world a little bit, how do you, do you do anything to manage social media around the, the culture of your team that you coach? Um, we address it, um, you know, as far as, you know, just some education about, you know, what you should post and what you shouldn't post. Um, but it's such a different world, Scott. Like I, I'm, I'm just a novice compared to many of the kids that come in. They, they're novices in football, but I'm novices in the you know, social media world. So, you know, whatever platform it is or, you know, how that platform works, I'm, I'm only kind of familiar with it from a spectator point of view. You know, like a, a spectator sees the game and comments on what's going on and without really knowing what's going on that's kind of what I'm like so um I I I don't um I don't engage too much in that I mean but it's a part of it you know so I mean I'm, I'm certainly aware of you know like the you know like we like I said there was this kid um we had and he had like some crazy number of like thousand followers on huddle you know like a, a high school sophomore with a thousand followers on huddle. Like who's watching huddle for like <laughs> high school sophomore? What's wrong with these people? You know, but, uh, but that's the way the world is. You, you know, you can attract a crowd, you know, depending, you know, the type of player and person you are and how you promote yourself, which um, personally um, I don't put much stock into. Um, I, everything that we talk about, is about the team and about doing, you know, what's best to help the team. And, um, you know, if, if it's against the team or, you know, hurts the team in some way, then, then there's an issue. But I, but I honestly haven't had to re- – I really haven't – there hasn't been a lot of negative things from that respect. I, I will say that, you know, the one interesting thing when it comes to high school kids and maybe the culture at the school that I'm at um, – they're very, they keep it, they keep it tight. You know, they, they're very protective of one another. So, you know, if somebody does something, goes to a party or does something they're not likely to tell you, you know, you're likely to hear about it some other way. Um, and I'm quite often the last person to hear, you know, something happened. Um, but they're, but you know, they're protective and they know how to navigate. So you kind of have to be vigilant and, and be paying attention because sometimes the clues aren't super obvious as far as if something's going on with the kid. Um, but then in other ways they can be so kids can be so, um, you know, they, they, they can be going through so much and, you know, and you get windows into it. Um, you know, we had a kid, um, two years ago and it was just like his parents were going through divorce and he was just distraught. I mean, it was like coming out and showing up each day was, like about all he could do, you know, and you just try to work with them and support them and let them know you're there for them. And there's not, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't make his parents, you know, situation any better, um, but I can be there for him, you know? And I think that's, I think that's huge. I mean, I, I had a kid, um, there's been some amazing things that have happened. There was a, a, a player who was like the, like, if you, if you thought about all of the qualities you'd want, in a football player, he possessed them. And he was a leader and he was a great teammate. The guys loved him. 
um, and um, during the season, his dad passed away. And I found out, you know, from his mom, and I, and I asked him, you know, hey, if there's anything you need, I'll, I'm here to support you. And at that time, he didn't want to say anything. So he really didn't. And then every Friday night, we have a team dinner. And he stood up in front of the team and shared with the team what happened. And it was amazing to be in a room of 40 high school age kids and maybe five or six coaches. And everyone was in tears. Everyone. And, you know, it just, it galvanized the team. It brought everyone together. And that was my first, that was my first year of coaching. And we were, uh, at the time, we were one and seven. <laughs> or, or one and six, sorry. And uh, we came out and just destroyed the team the next day. But it wasn't about the win as much as it was about the way the TS team, the team responded to him. You know, that each guy, like, came up to him and hugged him and, you know, like, I don't know if, like, my high school football team, the guys on it were as in touch with their emotions and able to communicate that as the guys that I coach today, you know. And I don't know if that's a function of the school I'm at or, um, you know, or, or just the generation. I think that's, a, that's also a testament to this idea. I want to revisit what Scott talked about, too, about the, the locker room and um, it, it can be swayed. It almost has an, um, an identity of its own. And I think that that can manifest itself in very positive ways and very negative ways. Um, if, if the locker room culture is a certain way, I think good people can do things that aren't of their nature and do bad things because that's the culture around them and vice versa. Obviously you're building a very good culture and maybe kids that are on the fringe see that you know the mask going this way and they're like you know what i'm going to make that choice because i'm buying into what is being sold here in the story that that's being built and i often talked about identity in football and i think it's something that i'm exploring and and i think that the game's exploring how it can inform you about yourself and i think that's the the football locker room and the culture that's built there is so powerful in the way that you can be yourself but it also gives you a roadmap to fit in. Um, and we, and we constantly as humans are looking for that. We're, we're such individuals. We, we, I am who I am and no one else is me. You know, we have these things that are very unique to us, but we also are group beings and we want to have a sense of belonging. I think sport is a necessary environment for you to explore that individuality in the, this is a space where it's okay to be me and I'm the guy that yells and I'm the guy, you know, they always have the yeller on the team and the quiet person and all this. And it's okay for that. And that's a space, but it's also something when you're down or when you're having those bad moments or those high moments, it's a culture to feed back into. Um, and I wonder if you do any or purposely or intentionally or as a coach try to, foster that or do you feel like it grows organically and if so like do you see a, a freshman progress to a senior um and grow up and then do you see that the team change as that person becomes a leader and the, the culture kind of shift towards that person or do you more see the players kind of situate into the way the culture the team sits um i i think the players um like fit into the culture of the team. And I think 
Um, I think as a as a coach, and maybe I'm overstating it, but I think that it's it can be a really delicate thing. Like if you allow something, then the players think that's part of the culture, and you might not even know you're allowing it. You know, if you allow kids to haze each other without knowing that they're hazing each other, then the kids think, oh, hazing is part of the deal. You know, but I I mean the way you foster that like connection you have with the players and you know, their, their trust in you and you know, what they think, how they think they're, it's okay to act within the structure of the team. Um, you know, I think is, it, it is a delicate thing. Like, and I think it has to be constantly um, renewed and expressed verbally, you know, many, over and over again. You know, it has to be explicit. They have to know exactly what to expect. And um, otherwise, you know, one one guy can destroy it. I mean, you know, which is crazy, right? Because like, like what you're saying, like, um, I, I totally believe is true. Um, like, you know, that, that the team can give you a lot, but also you can, you need to give a lot to the team. And sometimes you have different personalities not sometimes you always have different personalities on the team. And as long as that person's personality isn't like taking the team down, they may be on the real on the fringe of like what's allowed and they need to, they need to press the limits. I mean, everybody has that guy too, right. Who, you know, says something that's just outrageous. Um, but the guys still love him and he still is there for the team. And um, so I think it's something as a coach that you got to forever be vigilant about what it is, the message that you're sending and what's okay and what's not okay. And, you know, and sometimes you think you've made your met point clear and players understand it. Um, but they only understand it if they understand it. <laughs> and if you didn't get the message across, that's on you as a coach. So, um, and a lot of that is, um, uh, I think the connection that you have, that's why the connection that you have is the number one thing. That's, that's first and foremost. There's nothing more important than the connection you have with your players. I mean, and what, what play you run, you know, you know, what philosophy you have, all those things. Those are, those are great and super important um, to your success, but it starts with, you know, the connection. So I, I fell in love with the game of football when I was at six years old and I saw my big cousin play football and I fell in love with the game and I've been waiting for the time that I would grow out of football and think that it's not the most powerful experience I've ever had and it can't show us how to behave in the world and it can't be a, an exemplar of how we should behave in the world and, and a perfect example of society at large in so many ways. And I, and I haven't been able to do that. And so as we, as we just having this conversation, I believe that football, you can learn physics through football. If you teach the, the angles that it takes to throw a pass and you're, the person's running at such and such angle and you throw it with this velocity and it's going to follow this parabola and it's going to hit the person on that. You can, there's a format to teach physics through it. I believe that there's a high level of literacy that it takes to understand weak right west, U shift, F short, spotter two, U banana Z over, kill to 700 at red zone Frisco. There's a level of literacy and understanding. I believe that you can have 
players write essays about their experience through football and, and what they learned about a past game and they can engage with language in a different way. And in this last instance that we're talking about, I believe football can inform citizens as to what it's like to, to have rights. And, and I think in this country right now, we're having a conversation where my rights are more important than the collective rights in, in some instances. And I think that that's important that you understand your freedom. Like I'm able to, to be free and express myself. But as soon as my expression and my ability to be free impinges on another person's ability to be free or to live their life or to have a, a, a full and, and prosperous existence, that's no longer your freedom. And I think there's this identity where the team has to come first. And if we are, are to push forward as a nation, as a state, as a city, I think we should always keep in mind that your behavior can't hurt the team. And I think that's a lesson that we all need to learn in this society. And I'm going to get off my soapbox, but I feel like that was a time to, to, travel, <laughs> to, to go down the political road in, in a way and to say that I think you can learn a lot through football if we're teaching it. And we're having those conversations and coaches and players are engaging in that dialogue. There's a lot there to, to be ruminated and, and to, to build conversations. Yeah. It's funny. Cause going back to talking about that book, the real all Americans, one of the things that they said that I thought was really interesting was um, the, the, one of the reasons why they wanted to have football was because they felt like without war, the young men were going to become soft. Yeah. Like think about that mentality and how, how, where we're at now. Like, you know, it's been a while. I mean, we've had wars, but not close ones that are, you know, here and certainly most, I don't know, a lot of people haven't gone to war that some have, but, um, but I just think that mentality is one that, um, you know, is, is things have changed, you know, so much um, from where we were at. And I think if, more people, like you said, I totally agree with you. Like, I think team sports, being accountable to somebody else, um, that's, a th that's something that you just wish everybody understood that and understood how they fit. Because I think a lot of people don't feel – they don't feel part of the process. They don't feel like, you know, I'm an American. I live in America, but I'm really, you know, I'm really in it for me. <laughs> you know i'm not here for for the country or you know i'm here for my rights you know my my money my independence and uh you know there's a balance and i th feel like at times you know our country's got to remember that that balance that uh, it's a balance between freedom and independence and also giving back and sacrificing for that you know and I, I think the balance has kind of shifted in a weird direction. I'm going to pose a question to both of you. Um, and it's something that I don't have the answer to by any means. And I'd just like to talk around a little bit. And I'd like to use an analogy uh, in sports. Um, I'll start with a little bit of a story. This is way, well after I was out of high school. But the basketball team at Sonora High School, high school I went to uh, a few years back, had a lot of issues with their head coach, right? The way, and he was actually my JV coach at the time um, and was a really hard coach to play for in a lot of, in a lot of different respects. But the, um, 
the team was having issues with their relationship with him. Uh, didn't feel like he was looking out for their best interest. Didn't feel like he was setting the program up for success. And so a bunch of those kids basically told the administrators um, and had all kind of come together and said, Hey, if he's going to be the head coach, we're not going to play. Um, so coach ended up being asked. I think he was asked to step down. I can't remember if he was asked to step down or if he did it voluntarily or whatever. And a new coach has moved in. The program's actually done really well since then. The kids have had great relationships with their new coach. I posed this story and the analogy of sports. Um, what happens and in sports and then what happens in the country in a greater sense when you have a really bad coach when that happens what do you do <laughs> yeah that's a tough one um it it changes everything when you have a bad coach it makes all those moments that were fun and enjoyable looking coming to practice you know, it would be, uh, you know, a lot of fun. And then all of a sudden it's not, you know, so, I mean, I certainly understand, um, you know, people saying, well, you know, if we don't have, and you know, we got to find somebody who is a good coach. Um, but then I also think sometimes we've gone too far that, oh, if you don't, if you don't like the coach, you know, not, not if he's not, if he's doing a good job or you just don't like him, which one is it? You know, and that, that, that's a big question because he's doing a good job, but you just don't like him. He shouldn't be fired. But that line is really fuzzy at times. And, you know, I think to me it's about are you doing, are you doing good at your – are you doing a good job? You know, and if you're doing a good job and your philosophy is different than mine, okay, fine. You know, you live with it. People can learn something from that. Um, you know, I mean, as a parent, um, it's the hardest thing to watch your kids go through a situation where, you know, they've got a coach who's, you know, you see it, um, that, you know, they're not great. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to badmouth them as a parent because what are you teaching your kid? It's the coach's fault, right? You know, you don't want to, you don't want to teach your kids the coach's fault. Like, you know, there's always lessons. You're going to have good coaches and you're going to have bad coaches. And, you know, it's not totally dependent on the coach, you know, how things go. So, I mean, I think we all can sort of, you know, uh, step up our game, but there's no question the coach has a huge impact. So um, I can understand both sides of it. It's because I'm a Gemini. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, I can't top that answer in any form. I can just speak from experience. And um, I went through – in college a coach that not only did I feel I felt like he fell on both sides of that spectrum in terms of we did not get along um, for a, most of my time there we kind of mended towards the end but I never kind of felt like our relationship had fully rebuilt and and trust had been broken and so I personally responded in that way in a form that I wasn't completely proud of um, I responded in a very rebellious manner in certain, in certain things. And I said things that I wish I wouldn't have to, to nothing vile or out of the ordinary, but I was voicing my, my displeasure with the, the established and the, and the quote and the status quo. And I think I learned a lot of lessons that that's not how I want to behave 
But what spurred that was that I was able to see the injustice and I saw him hurt my teammates with how he coached that he actually put, put people in physical danger um, and hurt many players caused injuries by the way he was coaching. And then even on a lesser degree, but even a more powerful, I think psychologically, he really told people they were not enough was his, was how he had conversations with players was you're not enough. And I'm going to tell you why. Um, and I, I don't, think in that instance it's not the player's role to rebel and to to lash out and to cause him to be fired and what I admire most about myself and my teammates in that process is that the work never stopped and our interaction with the game never changed we still had that bond in the locker room we still went out and attacked on Saturdays and we could control our behavior in in our interaction with the game he couldn't take us away from the game of football and he couldn't take us away from the experience. Um, he did have a huge and overwhelming impact on our environment, but the one-on-one -on -one contact with the game maintained this, maintained and, and was the same. And I think that um, when you see that behavior in an individual, I think it's important to understand what you're responding to and then make sure you don't manifest it. Cause I think that's the biggest thing is that we often <laughs> we respond to things out in the world and those, what we respond most vehemently to is what we're most afraid of that we're behaving like. And we, we manifest those same behaviors and that's why we were so repulsed by them. And so I think it's really important to analyze what repulses you and then make sure that you make an active choice to not push that back on the world because we are, made up of our surroundings. We are, you know, just a mirror receiving all of the people that have fed into us and taught us how to behave. Um, so I think that the ultimate goal is personal responsibility that you choose to, to make the right path and not manifest that. And then obviously if it's a situation that's vile or unsafe, you go through the proper system of taking a person that's unjust to lead out of a, a position of leadership. Um, but I think the number one responsibility is personal ownership of, of behavior and choices on a daily basis. Yeah. I think one more thing on that, Scott, I think, you know, the coach, as a coach, you have responsibility to all of your players and all your parents and, to you know, administrators of your school, if it's a school. Um, so if you're not living up to those things, and like you said, Mac, if you're putting kids in danger, whether it be physical or emotional, um, then I would argue you're not doing a great job of doing your job, you know, and then you should be replaced. <laughs> I mean, I personally, I've always looked, I think as a player, I'm, I've always wanted to play for a good coach, no matter where I was, you know, no matter what team it was. And if I thought I was going to be on a bad coach, I made me think twice. And I'm sure kids today are the same way. They, you know, I see it at school I'm at, you know, the, the, you know, in uh, girls basketball at the school that I'm at, uh, one of my daughters plays basketball, and uh, they had so many girls not playing basketball because of this one coach. And eventually, last year, they got rid of her, and a bunch of girls came out of the woodwork. And, you know, they have, like, twice as many girls in the program now as they had the year before, just because people are, are do exactly what, you were talking about, Scott. I don't think that really has changed that much. 
I mean, I think, you know, parents play a vital role. And if the coach, um, you know, isn't living up to those things, they, they're sort of responsible for that, I think. I think it's a really it's a really hard situation to be in as a kid and then, you know, playing for a coach that's in that sort of system. And it's a really hard position, I think, as a citizen of a country when you feel yourself in that situation. And I think, Mac, I, I, I love what you just said about how important it is to take onus on your own behavior, your own actions, regardless. And I, I think one of the biggest indications of strong leadership is strong leadership has the people that they're leading together and united kind of as one and not divided and fighting uh, amongst each other. Um, and, and I've felt it on teams. I've felt it in, in companies I've worked for. I've felt it in a lot of different places and where there's good leadership, you, you're, you're working as a cohesive unit, usually against or towards some outside force. When there's weak leadership or leadership that's not, you know, universally trusted or respected, you get you end up getting a lot of division and a lot of infighting, and you know that's that's a part of life. We all go through those phases like that um, with different things that we become involved with, and sometimes it's within our control to leave that structure and move on to something else, and sometimes we just have to stick in it and ride it out. Um, and you know what you're saying about well you don't have to manifest the behavior you don't like, but you can still feed into the, the, the culture in, in a really positive way yourself. Right. So yeah, maybe the coach isn't handling things that, the way you would like um, as a member of that team, but that doesn't mean that you have to change the way that you're interacting with the rest of your players and interacting with your fans and interacting with your community. And I think the same thing can kind of be extrapolated out to, you know, the way we act as citizens within our own communities, with their, with, within our own neighbors. And I think that that's potentially a really, really important lesson that can come from, from the experience in sports, which segues me into what I, uh, I wanted to talk about next. And, and as Mark, you've, you've been a teacher in the classroom, you've been a coach on the field. Uh, so you've gotten to see high school student athletes from both those perspectives what does sport do for kids that school alone doesn't? And then what does school do that sport doesn't from your perspective? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, well, I think that as a coach, um, you, it's just a more intense experience. Um, you see kids every single day as opposed to um, sometimes, you know, in the classroom, you don't, depending on the schedule, you might not see a kid every day. Um, I think the other part that's really important in, in sport is that the kids are motivated to be there. Like they want to play that sport. They want to be on the field. Like, you know, what you're talking about, about, Hey, I want to play. Um, and so there's this motivation for them to work really hard. Um, and so as a coach, you can play like a really important role in terms of helping them form, uh, you know, their work ethic and their accountability to their teammates. Um, you know, uh, we at, at Sacred Heart, we talk about the four Ds. Um, this actually came from Servite High School. Um, one of our coaches played at Servite and then he went on and played at Stanford and was here for a long time. And, uh, you know, their, their, their motto was uh, dedication, determination, discipline, and desire. And, you know, so we always 
talk to them about that's how you lead your, you know, those are the ideals. Those are the things that you want to live up to, you know, um, and, you know, and that's not easy. It's not easy to show up every single day and work hard every single day. Um, so I think you can play a, a role in terms of helping them to, uh, you know, work through, you know, their own strengths and weaknesses in a way that you might not be able to do in the classroom. On the other side of it, um, in the classroom, um, I think it gives you sort of an opportunity um, to maybe a little bit, I don't know, depending on what type of a teacher you are, um, the environment can be a little bit different, a little bit more laid back. Um, and I think you, I think in the classroom, you're also co-ed. Um, not all schools, obviously, um, but, the, but for me as a football coach, that's probably the first thing that sticks out is the, you know, is the differences and needs of the students, um, you know, and, you know, as, as young men and young women and also, you know, in terms of their learning needs. Um, but you just have a, a greater diversity, I think, in the classroom in that way. And so, uh, and then obviously, you know, I think it's, you, you can design, you can design the situation a little bit more in the classroom um, in terms of, you know, what you're wanting them to learn and accomplish that day. As opposed to on the field, I think, I mean, you are designing the practice and situation, but they, they, they got to know what they're doing. You know, there's got to be a routine to it. I guess there's routine to both, so I don't know if that helps. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great question and it reminds me of uh, i don't know if i can recommend to the listeners and or if grieve or, or scott have read this but there's a book called what a coach can teach a teacher and i actually built it it's by jeff duncan andrade and i built a lot of my thesis as i finished it uh off of his book and if you ever get a chance i have it i'll send it to whoever wants it but um, it's the best book I've ever read in terms of relation to sport um, and how he connected it. He, he coached basket, a girls basketball team and he connected, he basically just talked about his philosophy of, of sport and how he built a program that excelled academically and excelled on the, on the basketball court. But if I can recommend a book that kind of talks about those worlds melding and, and where one can help the other, um, it's What a Coach Can Teach a Teacher by Jeff Duncan Andrade. Can you go into a couple of those nuggets? Um, for sure. I mean, he, he just talked about how mentorship and cohesive team nature can, everyone can play a role and understand their role on a, on a team. Um, whether a girl is, uh, an exceptional student, um, but, uh, not their starter on the, on the basketball team, what their role is and understanding their role on the basketball team versus someone who is very good athletically, but it struggles academically and how those two kind of teammates, um, in, her, in his program, he paired them together and matched them and see how the skills could transfer and they could help each other. Um, he talked a lot about mentorship, um, not only between players of the same age, but between players of, of older and younger players. So he would always have a senior be responsible for a freshman and a freshman responsible for a senior um, to show like mutual accountability and how that built teamwork, but how that also helped them just be resources for each other the freshman could ask the senior, like, you know, I'm taking this class, Do you know, this teacher, and then he, they could build a community within the team and how he fostered that community. Um, 
now it built a better basketball team and it built better students. Uh, that's kind of one example, but the book goes into a whole, he, um, Jeff Duncan Andrade is a big John Wooden fan. So he has a, a big, uh, he has the pyramid of success and how he applied that to his basketball teaching. And then the dirty dozen, which is, um, Pat summits from T university of Tennessee or volunteer. She had the dirty dozen, um, which is kind of like the basics, a lot of like the four D's very much from survive high school that you talked about grief. Uh, it's, it's kind of 12 of them and, and how it could kind of dictate the thought process that a player would take into practice things that they need to pay attention to. And they could kind of do that same thing as they walked into school or a classroom, um, and how those skills kind of transferred over in ways. Great book. Highly recommend. Well, I think, and Mac, kind of piggybacking off of what you said, I mean, I think that's a huge movement um, for teachers is to take a lot of those concepts that coaches are using to build their teams and to build that into the classroom. Because I think, I think a lot of teachers have the mentality of, um, okay, well, I'm here to teach my subject. But, you know, teaching is so much more than just your subject and creating a an environment in the classroom where students support each other. It's almost like having your own, you know, smaller team. Right. It's a great model. You, you coach, uh, I mean, we haven't talked a ton about the school where you coach and teach, uh, Mark, but, you know, it's one of the most affluent prep schools, arguably in the world. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. Sacred Heart Prep. It's in, you're in the middle of, the wealthiest part of Silicon Valley, you know, so these families are the CEOs and the execs of some of the biggest firms in the world. Um, what motivates these families to put their kids in sports? Uh, because I think sports teach all those things that are fundamental to success. I mean, they want to set their kids up to be successful. Um, and so they recognize the role that sports plays. Um, you know, I've, I, some of the, when I was interviewing for the job, I talked to some of the board members and um, one of the board members was a big donor. His kids played water polo and, um, but he was instrumental in starting the program at Sacred Heart. Um, big venture capital guy and, um, you know, more money. He probably made more money in a week than I'll see in my lifetime. But, um, but what he said was, you know, this is where, you know, you learn how to be successful. You know, you go and, you know, you play sports and you learn how to get along with people. You learn how to sacrifice. Uh, you learn discipline. I mean, all those, all those things that are kind of fundamental to, you know, success in the quote unquote real world, <laughs> whatever that, I haven't found it, so I'm not sure. Whatever, those things that you, you know, that you need to be successful, let's say in the business world, which is the world that a lot of our families um, live in, um, they're the same things that you need to be successful in sports. So, I mean, it's a, it's a natural connection. I love that. I want to, I would, so not only there, there's the, there's the solid connection between like sports informing us about how to be a better businessman in some ways, hard work, discipline, ahead of the curve. We always talk about them, 
But then let's talk about, I'm going to switch a little bit to the business of sport before. So I'm going to do a, a quick rundown about the arena football league and just kind of quick history. And I think you're a great person to kind of add some anecdotes because you're arguably the greatest arena football player of all time. Um, and so I just want to run down a quick history and how it's proliferated and what's its role in society. And do you think there should be a, a arena league and is there a space for it? I, I certainly hope it comes back, but um, so quick rundown, the arena football league, for those who don't know, was uh, created by its atoned, this man named Jim Foster, who in 1987, he was involved with the USFL as well as the NFL. He watched an indoor uh, soccer game of his children, and he kind of came up with the idea and kind of built the rules um, in the mid to early 80s. Uh, the fields uh, are basically a quarter of a normal football field, 66 yards long and 28 yards wide um, as it kind of plays out. It's obviously different arena to arena, depending on the size of the arena. Um, it's the, the league lasted. It's actually the third longest running league in history um, behind the NFL and the CFL. So it's outlasted a lot of other leagues um, in its ability to go from 1987 to actually ended up folding in 2019 with some spurts and some hiccups along the way. Um, the kind of its proliferation it built in 1987 kind of, kind of didn't do too well until it kind of exploded on the scene in 1998 with the arena bowl 12 and it was actually on ABC and it kind of was a big uh, push into the to main framework. And actually you were in the NFL Europe, I believe at that time. And they yeah. kind of came quickly on, on after that um, it for a long time, one platoon system so that players would play both ways for a long time, I believe until 2007 um, it maxed out at 19 teams in 2008. Um, it averaged 13,000 per game across the league, which is some, some teams had more, some teams had less, but across the league, 13,000 per game. Um, it is kind of proliferated and extended for a long time. And as you look at the history of these leagues, there are 18 indoor leagues have existed in the United States and 30 outdoor leagues in the history of football. Um, and this is the third longest tenured um, so I just kind of want to see if you have any added like history notes of that and what is the role of arena football? And do you think it has a place to entertain as a business in, in our society? I've thought about this a lot because, um, you know, because of kind of the tumultuous nature of, you know, a, a, not the NFL, um, you know, being another football league. Um, so first of all, um, you know, Jim Foster, he came up with the idea and he wrote, he drew, his design for the field in the back of a manila envelope. Um, I think he was on a flight at the time. And uh, so he came up with this. So they made a big deal of that. And, um, and I remember when I, when I first came into the league, they had one year plus, uh, plus they had your rights for another year. So when you signed a contract, you couldn't be a free agent. And so the players had like no rights. Um, and then Mike Pulaski came along and said, you know, we need to form a union. And the league was like vehemently against it. So it was a great insight for me into um, the politics of professional sports and how, you know, unions form. And, um, and so anyway, um, that changed everything for the league. When we were able to, you know, form a union, that made us sort of this stable entity and then, you know, the popularity and the TV money started coming in after, after, shortly after that. And um, the league just kind of exploded. 
Um, the way it was run, uh, I'm not a big fan of. The, the guy who was running the league at the time is now in charge of the NFL Hall of Fame, which is soon to go out of business. Um, that was a joke. Um, uh, because he's running it. But um, he took out a loan. And maybe he had to, I guess. But he took out a $10 million loan. And then the league went in. And then we hit a recession. And it was like, well, we can't pay this back. All right, we got to fold. You know, and um, it was just careless. Like, it was careless way to run a league. It was like a – to me, it was more like a Ponzi scheme. You know, you, you'd, you'd have one team start, and then another team would fold. And so it was like – these teams would be buying into the league, right, and putting their money into the league to get started, but then they couldn't last, right? And so there's only a few franchises that actually lasted. If you go back and look at the league, stayed around for a long time, Mac, but I don't think there was a single franchise that lasted the entire time. So, you know, it was a carousel of, of cities. And how can you build a fan base if, you, if it's a carousel? You know, it's like, oh, we're here, we're supporting you, and then, then all of a sudden we're gone. I mean, the Arena League, to me, had to be based around local – it had to be a local league. And the problem with football is you don't have 162 games to make money on. It can't be a sport based on people coming physically to the games. Football makes money because – the NFL makes money because of TV. That's the only way they do it. It's a perfect sport for TV because you have commercials and, you know, soccer is not a perfect sport for TV because it's continuous. The only thing they can do is put ads on the little, you know, bumpers that go around the field. Right. And so, um, you know, football is a perfect sport for TV. Um, and unfortunately, you know, when it comes to the arena league, it's so much better in person, <laughs> you know, so it just doesn't translate, you know, onto TV. And so, you know, that, that was kind of working against it. With that said, I think they did a pretty good job of, you know, of, of covering it on TV. And, but the only way you're going to be successful, in my opinion, is, you know, number one, you got to have a good product, right? What business is successful that doesn't have a good product? For sure. None, right? So you can't just have good advertising and, and think you're going to last for a long time. You, you have to have a good product. And I think, it, I think it was a great product. I mean, the game was great, but the players, you have to have great players. You know, when the Arena League was good, we had good players and it was competitive. And, um, you know, and there were competitive games and it was exciting to watch. Um, and so, um, but they, it was just hard for them to stick around in the same city for a long time. So, um, you know, the business of it was fascinating. I, I do think, there was an, there's, there's a place for it. I mean, there's a place for arena football in terms of like a fan experience. I mean, the family experience that the fans had in San Jose was like, you know, it was, out, it was outstanding. I mean, so many people came up to me after playing and said how, you know, oh, I, could, I used to bring my whole family to the games. You know, they could afford to go to the games. You know, it was indoors so they could bring their kids and, um, you know, it's just a great experience. So I think there's definitely a market for it. It's a great game, super exciting. Um, you know, I just think it has, like anything, it's got to be managed well. And they got to have a really good plan. You know, they got to have some kind of plan to have local television markets so the teams can stick around for more than two years. It's, it seems incredible to me that 
football in America can be so loved and yet only one league can make it work. Um, as opposed to every other sport that has multiple leagues and multiple situations, whether that be minor leagues or competing leagues across the world. Um, it's just, it's mind blowing to me that, that in it, every time and from my experience in the UFL or stories of other leagues, it seems like it, it's not about the product at so many times. It's about how they approach the business side of it and what is the entertainment and how can that entertainment be sold in, in a, sustainable way um and not kind of attack it in a very like capitalistic chew it up and spit it out kind of mentality and i think the arena league a testament to how long it lasted did have that foothold in certain places like san jose which i mean i love playing you know in san jose the the arena and the environment was awesome and the fans were awesome and and that's where the nugget is is can you hold and last for a long time um with that product. Um, yeah, I, I hope there's something that can come along that can capture that type of local football that I think is, is potentially very powerful. I mean, I, I mean, I, I used to go to the games after, I mean, when I was done, I would go back and watch the games as a fan. Um, it was fun. I just like going, you know, my parents were like, my parents were still going, they still had season tickets. They're like, Oh, you're tired. Okay. <laughs> We still got a game. <laughs> it's interesting because the the XFL they just had their one year and then they with the, the quarantine they just yeah COVID kind of screwed them. Wrong time. Interesting anecdotes along this way in my research as I did this. Um, interesting, there was a a barnstorming movement. So early on in both baseball and other sports, there was this whole barnstorming idea, and barnstorming is the idea where like teams will travel around and play games, but they won't have a hometown. So it would be two teams. It'd be like the birds versus the Eagles, you know, or whatever. And they would play a game in Indiana and then they travel to New York and they played a game in New York and they play a game in Florida and they wouldn't have a hometown. Um, and it was a long way away. Sports worked for a long time before they developed kind of a hometown and a home crowd. And it, the arena league explored that a little bit, actually. Um, and they're one of the first, one of the most famous, um, incidents was a guy named Joe Herring uh, punched Jim Foster at a barnstorming game in Sacramento. There was a brawl between coaches and the commissioner of the league at the time in a barnstorming event in Sacramento. It was kind of one of its early kind of exposures onto the scene, which was good and bad. It, it kind of had a lot of publicity, but then it also uh, kind of fell down. And just as I'm exploring this, the, the, the amount of how invested and how ingrained football is into our, our society. There's a something called the Western Pennsylvania football circuit that wasn't officially a league, but it was just people that played football in Pennsylvania from 1892 until 1940. Um, that was just a circuit of guys going out and playing football on the weekends. And it lasted for almost 60 years. Um, it's just it's fascinating to explore like how ingrained it is in our society and how many people have tried to have leagues and how you talked about, you know, the military militaristic nature of it and how like football was developed on college campuses to bring back this manlyhood to America because we didn't have wars to go fight and teach our young men how to be men, but how it's kind of turned into an identity of American culture at large. Um, and what was Ameri what was the Arena League's role in that? I think it's just fascinating in the, in terms of the history of the process. Well, I think it's interesting because I think the 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 fan 
perspective and what a fan gets out of the game of football and what somebody that plays the game gets out of it couldn't be more different. Mm. You know, a fan is cheering when someone gets knocked out. I mean, you know, it's funny, my brother, uh, uh, you know, he's a fellow UCLA Bruin like you. And yeah. he, said, he, goes, he goes, hey, go look at this clip from uh, Ohio State, Michigan football game in like 1982 or something. It's this guy who's a free safety comes up and just absolutely levels this guy, like completely knocks him out cold. And he stands over the guy, you know, his arms up in the air celebrating. And, you know, like, like think about that, like how different that is um, from what the game is now, you know, how much it's changed. But what I'm saying is the fans – you know, they've done studies and they cheer the loudest when people get knocked out, you know, and, you know, and that's what they want. They want, you know, they want the action and excitement and contact and not that the players don't want the action and excitement and contact, but there's just so much more that you experience as a player, you know, as, and I think, you know, like Scott was talking about, you know, the, the, the locker room culture that people talk about or the, the crowd Men, the, the crowd mentality some of those things aren't really the best things or the things that we should be you know espousing to um that exist within the culture i mean i went to a, a niners game this year and you know it's just sometimes and i used to think the raiders games were bad but it you know it just there was i was just kind of turned off to be honest with you and made me realize how much i appreciate going to a high school game um, not that there's probably, of course, I'm not in the stands, so maybe high school games just as bad. Um, but you know, there's just things that, from the fan perspective, that really turn me off. And because the, you know, I'm, I love the purity of the game. You know, I love, you know, the guys playing and the, the, how hard they work, how much they put into it. You know, watching, you know, our team come off the field after a hard-fought game. It's just that they've laid everything out there. There's just something that's really amazing and honorable about that I think and whereas I don't feel like that same honor exists when like you're screaming and yelling at a guy or getting in the fight in the stands I mean that that's kind of you know the other side of it it's all it's all so intermingled and as I look at football and sports in general it has elements of all of it it has like the the militaristic gladiator roots where it's like, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, like kill him. We murder him like mob mentality cheering. But then it also has this very ingrained identity of like, like discipline and teamwork and cooperation work ethic that are like very noble disciplines that it teaches us how to behave in the world. And then it has the celebration, right? It's like, it's a party. It's, it's everyone's coming together to, to celebrate the game and, and to push on into, into the world. And then it, it just has so many different veins that kind of interact with, with different personalities in nature and why it proliferates so far. I think that, um, yeah, it's just fascinating how, who connects with it and why. Um, and then it has like, you know, cooperation i think the beauty of of uh, uh mark grieb and a james Rowe knowing each other so well that that cooperation and that collaboration in an, in an artistic endeavor i think is like the fourth pillar that kind of makes sport 
and football loved and hated so much. I, I just think that it's it's all of that, and it's it's a microcosm of it. I got one question for each of you before we wrap up. You know, you guys know me. I'm kind of an optimist just a little bit. But looking at that bright side of sport, um, from the experience of playing, right, and, and in a previous episode, Mac and I talked about, Mac really opened up about the game of football the experience of playing when you're on the field is this, in a lot of ways, it's the same experience of when you first start playing football in the park or in a playground as it's in a lot of ways, kind of the same thing. And that's what we refer to as sport in the micro. It's just that interaction with the guys around you in a space. The question for both of you is <clears throat> from what we've talked about and maybe something we haven't talked about, how has that experience of playing informed you in your life? How has it shifted perspective on things? And how do you think that that experience of playing with other people, how do you think that that improves the world? Wow, that's a great question. I'll dive in first. And, and I, I think that what struck me right there, and I always answer with what hits my chord and at the you know what kind of makes a connection with me right there i think the reason why i play the game and what was most profound is i've it kind of progressed along and i i maybe forgot at some point or i've forgotten along the way is that connection with the other that that i know who you are scott because i've seen you when the, when it wasn't going your way and like, I know what Mark Grieb is like after a loss and how noble he takes that experience. And I think that that ability to make a connection with people across in that environment and for it to be safe to be yourself and not even know that you're doing it, but that that human to human connection in a, a cooperative endeavor where no one's going to perish but we can push ourselves to limits because of how much we want it. And we can do that in collaboration. Um, I think for a part of my career, I, I was so single minded. I was in the business of sports that I was like, how can this feed me? Um, what do I need to do to be a better football player? How can I grind myself to, to get what I want so I can go out and I can, you know, be famous and throw the touchdown. Everyone's cheering and not, understanding the purity of what it is that it's like how can i exist to make my teammates better and that that identity that team mentality i think is something that when you place someone before in front of you and, and in a situation like how can i facilitate a space why put the ball to make him look good is ultimate the way be you become your best and to quote Martin Luther King, again, is that like, I cannot become what I ought to be until you become what you ought to be. That that identity, if you place someone else in front of you and you work to get them to their position of excellence, in that process, you've examined excellence from a more three-dimensional perspective and you have a better understanding of excellence. Um, and it, it, you can understand more about people and you can understand more about yourself along that process. If you just think about yourself, you get a very narrow view of the world. Mac, you're so deep, man. <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Same question to you, Mark. 
I just like playing ball. No, I'm joking. Um, I think that's a beautiful answer, though. I really do, and I, I could I could go off on that for a while, but I, I do want to hear what you have to say. Well, I, I mean, that that's the first part. I mean, obviously, I, I loved it, um, and that's why I tell everybody my advice is you know do find something you love and won't seem like you're working um, nearly so much. Um, some days it will, but um, I think for me, uh, I just found that. There were so many lessons along the way that each place you're at or each team that you were on, there was some lesson to learn. And just like life, if you didn't learn it the first time, um, you ran into somebody somewhere down the road that helped you learn it the second time. Or, you know, um, and for me, um, I just, I don't know, growing up, I, I never really thought I was like, the best player, or, you know, um, you know, some guys were just naturally gifted. And so they were superstars from early on. I had to work for everything I got. And um, so I didn't, I never really thought that I was that great. And then I got into the arena league eventually and, you know, I had a decent college career. And, um, and then there was four years where we got to the semifinals and didn't win. And, uh, and I started to think like that was me, you know, like it was that I wasn't capable and I wasn't good enough. And, uh, you know, some things happened along the way without getting into, you know, all the details of everything. But um, that, that year where we won it, the first year where, you know, I was on the field and we won a championship, like it was kind of like a validation of who I was as a person. Like, you know, that I, I am good enough to be here. Um, and I don't think I ever thought that before. And so, you know, that all came through the sacrifice and the hard work and, you know, all those things. But, you know, never, never really knowing what the outcome was going to be. Um, so, I mean, there's so much you could talk about with all the lessons that you've learned, but. Definitely, like you said, Scott, it always comes from, you know, the love of the game and, you know, and what, what your goals are and what you want to accomplish. Yeah. I love it. Better way to end that. Mark, we can't thank you enough for your time, man. It's a, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you when we, when we do from the years to years. But, uh, but uh, I, I think there's a ton there for, uh, for parents, kids, coaches, and, and everybody to take out of the conversation. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for thanks for having me on, guys. It was great talking to you. Great catching up. It's like I, I, how long has it been? How long did you say it's been? I think eight years. I think <laughs> it's been eight years now. Eight years. Yeah, two two thousand twelve was my last year. That was the year you retired, right? Yeah. You yeah. and I retired in the same year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being here.